that's so faithful this morning. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Got a call late last night, as many of you are aware, and Adam was stuck in Chicago. Couldn't even get a rental car. Um, said there were, there were fights about to break out in the Avis area where the rental cars were being uh, rented, obviously, but apparently they'd made a lot of reservations they had no cars for, and people were not happy. So um, he called last night, and I was happy to come this morning and serve the, the Word of God to you. I had, a, obviously, just a few moments to think about what we would do this morning, and um, obviously knowing we would turn away from the book of Mark that Adam is taking us through. And uh, just to set our thoughts this morning um, on something that may be a little bit more of a practic- in a practical nature, uh, maybe a little less preachy, but a little more practical, but maybe a little bit of a mix of both. So that's my goal this morning. The title of our message today is Navigating the Waters of Life. Navigating the Waters of Life. And this is a topic that I've looked at uh, many years ago when a number of things had happened in the church I was pastoring. And uh, we, we all get assaulted with different things in our life that are difficult. Trials, tragedies, difficulties, um, suffering, whatever that may be. And it's always good for us to have some tools in our tool belt to navigate those times in our life that sometimes can last for days, months, weeks, years, and uh, how do we um, navigate those successfully as Christians. So that's kind of what I want to look at this morning. You can open your Bibles. We're going to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You can open Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to maneuver through a number of texts this morning, so have your fingers nimble and uh, your Bibles ready, so we're going to move around this morning a little bit. But as you're moving there this morning, let me just take a moment to pray as we begin our time in the Word of God. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We do pray for Adam as he's away, that you'll make him his way back here safely. And uh, Lord, we now come before you this morning looking into your Word to gain insight and truth. Uh, Father, that your Spirit would lead us and guide us into what we learn and just take it and apply it into our lives. And uh, Father, there are many uh, things that come our way in, in your providence that you're never surprised by, uh, that are difficult, and uh, life can be difficult at times. But we are not left without hope, certainly. We are not left without tools and resources that come from the Scripture to help us navigate these things. So, Father, I pray that this message this morning would be particularly helpful and insightful for the body of Christ, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most difficult passages in the world for any captain to navigate a ship is, this, is going around the southern tip of South America and through the southern ocean as ships make their way around that section, what is known as the Cape Horn or the tip of South America. That strip of water going around the Cape, which contains what is known as the infamous Drake Pass or infamous Drake Passage. And it confronts the best of sailors with several navigational challenges at a minimum. First, let me eliminate you to a few of them, not to belabor the point, but first, ships going around the Horn and through the Drake Passage, the the ships and sailors must deal with the prevailing winds known as the Roaring Forties, the Furious Fifties, and the Screaming Sixties. Why is that? Well, Below 40 degrees latitude south, winds can travel from west to east nearly uninterrupted by any landmass, and so the wind has nothing to slow it down. These winds become fierce for any ship traveling from east to west around the Horn as they make their way west. 
This is important for rounding the Cape because one must travel to at least 56 degrees south latitude, well into the heart of these winds and well into the heart of the Drake Passage to make it safely. These winds are they're further um, excavated by, by really a funnel effect that is formed around the Andes Mountains and the Antarctica Peninsula, which directs the winds with great force right into the narrow Drake Passage. So there's nothing to impede the wind. And, and not only that, there's a, a funnel effect coming off the mountains and down through the peninsula there that funnels the wind even stronger. So it's got sort of a propeller mechanism to make them blow even faster and harder. Certainly a navigational challenge for any ship going through this passage. Secondly, these winds produce waves of great height, rolling and building with no land or no, nothing to interrupt their growth and their power. Now because, but there's more, because the, the narrow strait is also very shallow. So not only is there nothing to impede the waves, but the shallowness of the water makes the waves grow steeper and higher and in, uh, sorry, and shorter and steeper, becoming even more dangerous to the passing ships. And if the eastern current in the Drake Passage encounters an east wind, the waves become even higher in size and strength. And so once a ship makes it through to the west side, you think, okay, they've got it made now, right? Not yet, because once they make it through to the west side of the passage, they then encounter what has been, what had been known for many years as the 100-foot rogue waves. Not, they may not always encounter those, but the west side of the passage is known for producing waves of 100 feet in height. So not only the wind and not only the waves, but third and finally, the frigid waters of the Drake Passage. The frigid waters around the Horn and in the Drake Passage, their ships and captains must be aware of not only the winds and the waves, but also of icebergs. While the icebergs uh, are, are rare, and uh, most of the time confined to latitudes south of 50 degrees south, they can extend northward in the winter to the 40 degree latitude, and so there can be icebergs throughout the passage on the west side as another navigational challenge for captains to make it through the passage. So needless to say, even with our modern ships and modern equipment and all that they have available to them, they are faced with significant challenges, significant factors in making it through that passage successfully and without harm to the ship or cargo or the crew. And you say, well, what is the point this morning? Well, the point is this. You and I know that we need to understand the waters of life because the waters of life present to us many navigational challenges, do they not? This morning you may be here, sitting here in this point in your life, and maybe you're going headlong against some prevailing winds. Or maybe you're going headlong against some waves that are crashing on your shore right now. Or maybe you've even hit the 100-foot rogue wave, and your life is very difficult right now. A lot of challenges, struggling to get through and make it through successfully. Certainly we know life can send us all kinds of challenges whether it be to our health, whether it be to our wealth or lack thereof, whether it be in relationships, whether it be in our careers, whether it be with our kids, whether it be with coworkers, whether it be with our faith in general, we, if not now, we will face a challenge 
he was able to head to such a part of life. And certainly we know because of the noetic effect of sin throughout God's creation, these challenges are there. Sin itself creates problems, does it not? Can you say amen? Sin creates problems. Sin creates problems that invade our lives. Our own sin, can, we can create our own problems. The sin of others around us creates problems that we must navigate through. The sin and fallenness of humanity creates health problems in our bodies, disease, and things that we have to face as well. And so we know that just because of sin alone and its effect on creation and mankind, many challenges come in many forms and in different measures of intensity at any given time in our lives. But occasionally, as I've said earlier, we get hit by something big. And this shock force can really knock us down, can knock us off our feet, in a figure of speech, can kind of knock us senseless, feeling like we've hit a spiritual concussion, in a sense. And then how the question is, how do we navigate those situations and those realities? Many years ago, in the church I was pastoring, we had went through just a really interesting time of, of different challenges. We had we had a young gal in our church, and she was really good friends with a family that went to another church, but the father died of brain cancer very young. And then we had a, a young gal who was a daughter of a family in our church who overdosed and died at age 19, right near the other death. And so it was a difficult time. There was a lot of loss and heartache that was going on. Even I think about our own church. We've had deaths recently in our own church that have shaken the lives of some, things that are difficult to navigate, our hearts, and our hearts grieve in those situation, situations. But life is interesting, isn't it? Because at the same time we were facing those challenges, that we're facing these situations that bring grief and difficulty and pain, at the same time, we, we, in God's providence, there's things to rejoice of. People being saved and new babies being born and new adoptions of kids and new jobs to be attained and believers in Christ added to the fellowship of God. And so there's always this mix of life where there are things to grieve about. There's challenges in our life. At the same time, there are things to rejoice about. And that is just in God's providence and in his timing. And while we rejoice in many of those things, and we should and will, oftentimes we get hit by difficult things that create sorrow and unexpected difficulty. Navigating the waters of life can be difficult. And if we're not prepared... If we don't have tools in the tool belt, uh, in a biblical sense, these, these things can be very challenging to us. They can bring a lot of pain, and it can cause us really to be tossed around like a ship without a rudder. It can be tossed, we can be tossed around like a ship with no ballast in the boat that puts us down deep in the water so that we can navigate the waves of those challenges successfully and peacefully. I remember Paul back in Ephesians, Ephesians um, chapter Four, he talks about there that he wants the whole body of Christ to grow up and mature as one unit, as one mature man uh, in doctrine and in teaching. Why? So that they would not be tossed around uh, like a ship without a rudder, without a ship without a sail and no bearings, so they'll be grounded in Christ. Well, the same thing applies to these challenges in life that we face. We need grounding. We need tools. We need ability so that we would not be tossed here and there. So what I want to do, as I said earlier in this message, is give you those tools. 
in light of uh, where we're going, I hope this message really will serve to strengthen you and give you some practical things that you can have available to you to navigate the difficulties of life. So this morning, what I want to do is give you five navigational tools, five navigational tools so that you can successfully and peacefully navigate the waters of life. Five navigational tools to successfully navigate the waters of life. And as I said, we're going to look at some different texts this morning, um, so we'll be moving around a bit. Let me give you the first tool, though. The first tool is we need to be aware of what life will bring. So the first tool really is awareness of what life will bring, or we could say we need to gain an awareness of what life will bring to us. Every successful ship captain is aware of what lies ahead. He has navigational charts to describe the waters that he is sailing through or at least about to sail through. He knows the dangers that exist in those waters and that the dangers that are possible to be in those waters for him that he might encounter. Well, we also have the navigational chart of life, and it's found where? It's found in the Scripture. We have the navigational charts of life, and it is found in the Scripture. Peter tells us that God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness that comes through a knowledge of God, 2 Peter 1.3. So God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness, and where is it found? It's found in His Word. And it is in His Word that God has revealed to us and made us aware, listen, of the seasons of life and the things that in life that we are going to face. King Solomon was the wisest man to ever live and searched out everything under the sun, everything under heaven. He searched out life on earth to, to every corner of the earth, everything he could imagine, everything he could find as it relates to life on earth. And he became the wisest man ever to live on earth. And God revealed through him that everything in life has its appointed time has its appointed season. Look at Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. Solomon writes here, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up is lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Make no mistake, God has appointed a time for everything. He has appointed a time for everything in life. He has appointed a time for birth, death, laughing, mourning, planting, uprooting, war, and peace. These are all created seasons by God and all appointed by Him. These all exist in His providence and in His created order. All of these things are the cycle of life and in a sense that we go through and experience, do we not? We experience all these seasons and we experience all these things in life. And we need to be aware of that from the scriptures that we will encounter all of these things. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes these seasons overlap. Sometimes these seasons of life overlap, as I was describing earlier. Sometimes we're sorrowful yet rejoicing almost at the same time. It's just like when we have warm days in the fall or winter where it, seem, where it seems the seasons are overlapping. You have a 65-degree Christmas day in southern Indiana, and we know the seasons are overlapping. Amen? 
So we know the seasons of life overlap as well. The seasons of life overlap as well. And we are going to find this happening, happening in our lives. Ultimately, God knows this. And he is in control of this. And Ecclesiastes, look at verse 11 of chapter 3. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in the heart, yet so the man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. And so God has set everything appropriate in its time, and he is, goes on to say there that it is somewhat of a mystery. That's for God to know, and for not for us to know. We will know when God declares to reveal that to us. And so the first point I want to make is that we need to be aware of this. We need to be aware that there is going to be difficult times in life. We don't need to be scared of it. We don't need to be aware in the fact that we're anxious about it or fretting over it or worrying about it. We just don't want to be caught off guard when it happens, amen? So there needs to be an awareness of all of these seasons. And if we're going to navigate these waters successfully, uh, there is a sense in which we don't want to be caught off guard by it. The greatest ship captains, as we know, they are prepared for the waters they are about to sail through. So the first tool is we need to have an awareness of what life brings. The second tool is this. The second tool is this. Anchor your life to the rock who is God. Anchor your life to the rock who is God. Turn back a few pages to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. It's one of my favorite psalms in the psalm. And psalm 18 is a great illustration from King David of anchoring our life to the rock who is God in very difficult times and in very difficult circumstances. Look at verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 18. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. As the storms and tragedies of life assault us, we must be anchored to the right source of strength. And that's who? That's God. And that is God. David here models what we see time and again in Scripture, especially in the Psalms. When the psalmists are faced with difficulty, who does he rely on? Well, he relies on the rock, who is God. The one whom he calls the rock, he turns to God. You need to understand the context of this psalm. The context of this psalm, David's situation, was he was facing an onslaught of his enemies. He often was facing onslaughts of his enemies, no doubt. But in Psalm 18, that's what he's facing once again. He was oppressed by them to the point of death. Let's read further on in the psalm. Verse 3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Look at verse 4, the cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol, or death, surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me in my distress. I call upon the Lord. So what is David's situation? This is not some battle that could happen or might happen or sometime in, in the future day. No, he is surrounded, and he is surrounded by an onslaught of enemies so powerful and so strong that he basically is saying the cords of death have surrounded him. That was his situation. And who is David turning to? Who is David anchored to? Well, he is anchored to the rock. Who is his God? 
He uses words to describe God, like rock and fortress and stronghold. And in ancient Israel, that would have painted a very powerful picture for the Israelites. Why is that? Because refuges were often what? They were often rocks. They were often caves that they went into to protect themselves from a literal storm. And so the word picture transfers in a spiritual nature to God. He is the refuge. He is the rock. He's the one I can lash myself to. He is the refuge I can go into for protection and care. And so David uses that language here of the one and only true God who is his personal God, who is his rock that he is going to lash himself to and anchor himself to. And when the the storm of his enemies hit, he was anchored to God. Notice here, there's no mention of weapons. There's no mention of chariots. There's no mention of maybe brokering a deal with another foreign nation that can come rescue him. We know in the Old Testament that happens occasionally and doesn't turn out too well for the people who don't trust in God and make a bargain. He doesn't trust in his mighty warriors. No mention of these things. David simply says he is anchored to and his trust is in God, his rock. Psalm 18, verse 31, later down, who is rock? Who is our rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength. Psalm 28, verse 1, don't need to turn there. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Psalm 31, verse 3, for you are my rock and my fortress, speaking of God. In Psalm 42, here's the picture of the psalmist who's distressed and in in despair and in darkness and has set in. He can't see any way out. But how does he describe God in that passage when he's in the deepest depression of his life? What does he do? Psalm 42, verse 9, I will say to God, my rock. And so the psalmist who is vexed with despair and depression and the darkness of that, still in that difficult water to face, is holding on to God as his rock. Psalm 71 is a psalm of an older man in his letter using life. In verse 3, he says, continue to be my rock and my fortress. So he always has been. He's praying to God that he still will be. Psalm 73, one of my favorite psalms, Asaph, here is the psalmist. He's enraged by the fact that the wicked seem to prosper and they're never judged. They just go on and on, prospering, doing evil, stealing building up their wealth, eating all they can find. Nothing ever seems to happen. No judgment ever comes. He's incensed by it. He said he was so, in the end, he says he was so foolish. He was like an animal because he was so foolish in his bitterness over the situation. But at the end, when he came to his senses, he said, he says, I will never, um, he says, I will, sorry, I can't read my notes there. (laughs) I need my glasses on. He says, I will nevertheless trust in God, my refuge. So even when he looked around and he saw all of humanity in lostness and evilness and pagan sinfulness prospering, he says, nevertheless, I will still trust in you, God, my refuge. And so when the rogue waves of life come upon us, we must be anchored to the rock who is God. Even when the wave seems unfair, unjust, senseless, lacking any perceived good, you and I must stay anchored to him to weather the storm. 
to weather the storm. And he wants us to be anchored to him. He wants us to be trusting in him. We must develop the conviction that he is our rock, and that must be driven, listen, deep into the recesses of our hearts and our souls. That's the tool that when the difficult thing comes in our life, God is so driven so deeply into our hearts and our souls, he will be our rock, and he will be our shield to navigate that storm. How do we do that? How do we drive him deep into the recesses of our hearts? Well, we do it through his word. We find him in his word. Now, if he truly is our God, then there is a another tool that we must place in our navigational tool belt. So if we're going to trust in the one who is our rock and who is our refuge, let me give you the third tool. The third tool is that we must then trust, this is important, trust that his ways are right and just, even when they don't seem like it. Even when they don't seem like it. We must trust that his ways are right and just. Now, go all the way over to Romans chapter 11. So, big jump, Old Testament, all the way now into the New. Go to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. One of the tools that we must have in our tool belts is to trust that our rock and our shield and our defender, that his ways are right and just, even if they don't seem like it. Look at Romans chapter 11. Let's go to a little context here. We know what the book of Romans is about. Paul is making a case to the church in Rome that we are justified by faith and through grace, and we are justified through by faith through grace alone. Jew and Gentile now are both saved based on the merits of faith that come through our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapters 1 to 8, Paul deal, details this out for the church, this whole faith through grace concept of salvation that we now participate in. But then in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, it's like this interlude. It's like this interlude section. And then later in chapter 12 and on, Paul's going to give the practical implications of that. But in Romans 9 through 11, there's this interlude, and it primarily deals with Israel and God's present dealings with them. So 9 to 11, is the, Israel's the subject, and Paul is detailing how God is currently de- dealing with the Israelites. And Paul explains here, and the Israelites and their position concerning the gospel. So how, how do the Israelites currently stand before the gospel? Look at verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will move ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 28, he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, the Israelites, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they, may, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. What is Paul talking about here? Well, Paul wants the Roman church to be aware of a mystery, he says in verse 25, mainly for their humility, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. 
What is the mystery? Well, there has been a partial hardening in Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, God has hardened the hearts of the Israelites in this period. Why? Because this is the time of the Gentiles. And the gospel to go to the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Then in verse 27, he says, they are enemies of the gospel for the sake of the Gentiles. So right now, the Israelites are literally the, the enemies of the gospel for the sake of the Gentiles. So once, the one group, once was disobedient, the Gentiles used to be disobedient, now are shown mercy because of the disobedience of the other. Are you tracking with me in God's wisdom here? But those now disobedient, the Jews, because of mercy shown to the Gentiles, will also be shown mercy. And then he goes on to say, all have been shut up in disobedience so that God may show mercy to all. What can Paul say then? He considers God's justice and mercy here to be unfathomable wisdom. So in one hand, God has hardened one people so he can show mercy to the other. And then later he's then going to come back and show mercy to the other until the fullness comes in. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depths and riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. From Paul's standpoint, God's ways are, his justice was unfathomable. Who can know it? And the principle is this, God's ways and justice are not our ways. All his ways are right and just because he is God. So what on a human level may seem unjust, why would God harden the heart of one group so that he can save the other and then later come back and unharden them so that he can save them? You know what? It's God's justice. It's God's justice. And Paul proclaims, oh, the depth and riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And so the theological point is this, God's ways are true. They are just. His judgments are right. His timing is perfect. He is God. And the practical illustration for us is this. God's ways are not ours. That's what makes him God. And that's the way we want it. We want him to be God. If his justice was the justice that we carry in our minds, then he would not be God. There would be no separation between creator and the created. And this is what makes him God, and we want it this way. Without it, he is not God. We do not understand oftentimes, but when difficulties, tragedies happen, we know God's ways are not ours, and it is his ways that are right and just. Oh, we have to let that sink in, don't we? That's hard on a fleshly level, amen? There are times when we think, that, that's unjust. That's not right. How could that be? How could he, how could he allow this to happen? He's God, and we have to trust that his ways are perfect, and we need that tool in our tool belt when we encounter the difficult passages of life, the difficult things that we must navigate. We must trust in him and anchor our life to him. Our convictions and our view of God must be so big that we trust all things are according to his ways and plans. So what's the point? We need to have a big God, do we not? We need to have a big God. 
I certainly don't want God thinking that my uh, definition of justice and circumstances and et cetera should be his. That's a scary thought. We have a powerful illustration of this. Now, turn back a few pages to Mark 14. And I'm not stealing Adam's thunder because he won't be there for a few months, as we know. I'm no kidding. Mark 14. We have a powerful example of someone who looked upon God's justice and how that was going to be meted out. And what did he say about it? Mark 14, verse 32, they came into a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he willowed beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, crying out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus faced the most unjust death known to humanity. The sinless Son of God would die for the sins of all of those who would follow him. The just dying for the unjust. The thought was so awful that Jesus prayed, if it could be, what? Let it pass by. But ultimately, what did he say? But not what I will, but what you will. And so we have an example. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself looked on the most unjust situation ever known to humanity that will ever happen. Did he plead for it to pass by? Yes. I mean, it's okay for us to pray to be released from difficult situations. But ultimately, what did he say? But not my will, but whose? Your will be done. This was the Father's will. And this was his ways. They're not our ways. And we must trust that his ways are right and just, even when they don't seem to be and even when we can't see his purpose behind them. Let me give you the fourth promise, and we're going to wrap up here quickly. The fourth promise is this, and we'll review in just a second. We need to put our hope in his promises. We need to put hope in his God's promises. That's our fourth tool to navigate the difficult waters of life. Put hope in his promises. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. This passage is similar, is, um, shouldn't be unfamiliar to us. We've looked over this in Sunday school. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is a great illustration and example of navigating the difficult waters of life. Verse, chapter 4, verse 13 of First Thessalonians, but we don't, do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no, what? Hope. What does one most desire in the midst of a death or tragedy? Well, sometimes the first thought is we want them back, we want them to be back with us, but when we know that's not possible, the next thing is that we want our heart to be set on hope, hope in the future. In 1 Thessalonians, that's exactly what Paul does with the Thessalonian believers. We know that some have died in Christ, in the Thessalonian church, and the Lord has not returned yet. So they are fearing for them. They've died. 
in Christ, but Christ has not returned to come for them. And so there was fear for them in the church. They grieved their loss without any hope. And Paul did not want this. He does not want them to grieve without hope in the future. So what does he provide? How does he provide this hope? Well, he delivers to the church promises of God. And so that's the key here, promises of God. There's promises of God all throughout the Scripture that can build up our hope in times of difficulty. Paul did not want this. Paul gives them hope in the future so they can grieve hopeful. That hope here is centered on future promises, promise of Christ's return for the church. It's the same promise Christ gave in John 14. Look at verse 14 here, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this way we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, here's the promise. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So he was giving them the promise of God that the Lord will come back and the dead in Christ will rise to go and be with him forever. And that was how they could grieve with hope centered on the promise of God here, the promise of Christ's return. And you and I can navigate difficult situations, tragedies in life, by putting our hope in the promises of God. Paul, or excuse me, not Paul, but Jesus in John 14, as laid out in John 14, and Jesus gives all kind of promises to disciples. He says he's going to leave them, and they become anxious about that, right? And he gives them all kinds of promises there for them to put their hope on. He would not leave them alone. He would provide them a helper. He would be united to them spiritually forever. He would give to them uh, power that they had not, even power that he, they had not seen to that point. He would not leave them as orphans. He would provide life and peace, etc. All kinds of promises that he made to them to give them hope in difficult situations. And when we encounter the difficult waves of life, we need to cling to his promises. Our hope is finally and firmly attached to them. He will not leave us or forsake us. So let's review where we've been so far as we wrap up. Four tools so far. We need to be aware of what life will bring. We need to anchor our life to the rock who is God. We need to trust that his ways are just and right. We need to put our hope in his promises. And finally, we need to worship God. That's the final tool. In difficult situations, what do we need to do? We need to worship God. Now, go back to Habakkuk chapter 3. It's going to be a little difficult to find, so just go to Matthew and turn back a few pages. You'll get there. Habakkuk chapter 3. And let me give you the context for the book of Habakkuk. If you've not studied it at all, the book of Habakkuk is a very interesting time in the Israelites' history. Let me say this before I give you the context. Why are we making this point about worshiping God in difficult times? Those who have gone before us, sailing through great trials and difficulties, they have left us a great example, really. Habakkuk is going to be one of them. They respond to God in worship. We know this from Job chapter 1. The Lord giveth, the Lord has taken away. Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in the book of Habakkuk chapter 3, we also find the response of worship, just as we see here with Job. The context here, Habakkuk, is a book that contains a dialogue between the prophet and God. So Habakkuk and God are talking. And the Israelites are in a very 
very destitute place at this point in their history. They are, the land is filled with wickedness. There is no justice, no mercy, taking no one following the law in the land. And Habakkuk says to God, God, why do you allow wickedness to continue in Israel? Where are you, God? Why are you allowing this to continue to happen? And God says, I am not allowing it to continue to happen. In fact, I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to send the Chaldeans, your enemy. They're going to come and they're going to judge you. They're going to judge the Israelites. So, so understand what's going on here. God is going to use his enemies to raise them up and send them into the land to judge the Israelites. And Habakkuk then says, God, why do you look on the wicked, the Chaldeans, with favor? So why are you going to favor them and use them to judge the nations? And God simply says to Habakkuk, my decree is set. I will judge Israel. I will use the Chaldeans to do it. And then you know what he says? Then I'll judge the Chaldeans for doing it. That is the book of Habakkuk, chapters 1 and 2. And the message to Habakkuk, which is quoted by Paul in Romans, is we shall live by what? Faith. We shall live by faith in God. And so here's this terrible message that the prophet's gotten. Right? All this wickedness, Israel's off in all their wickedness. God says, I I'm not silent. By the way, I'm going to send your enemies to destroy you. That's going to be the judgment. Habakkuk says, why are you going to do that? Why are you using the wicked? That's my decree. And it is just. And so what is Habakkuk's response in chapter 3? Worship. It's amazing. It's worship of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, if you made your way there. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. Verse 2, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember me. He goes back to, and he appeals for what? God's faithfulness in the past. Ask for God to show mercy in the midst of his wrath. He begins here by worshiping God. His, his worship takes the form of a prayer here, verses 1 and 2, to remember mercy and wrath. Verses 3 through 15 really are about his judgment that's going to come, but there's also woven into there. We don't have time to get into all of it this morning, but there was promises woven in there where Habakkuk acknowledges in the present tense, because he's so confident about it, that God will later in the future redeem a remnant of Israel. But pick it up in verse 16. You won't, these verses won't be unfamiliar to you. Habakkuk confesses his own utter inadequacy. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound of my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. For the people to arise who will invade us. That's not an unfamiliar feeling, isn't it, when we're in a difficult place? But what does Habakkuk do? Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vine, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will what? Exult in the Lord. And I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength 
made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on hinds legs. And so here we have Habakkuk. Terrible, terrible message. Terrible things coming. He's anxious about it. So what, what does he do? He draws lots. He still worships God as the true and great God that he is. This is how we navigate the storms of life, the difficulties that come. We arm ourselves with these tools. And I pray this morning that these tools will be helpful to you in the days ahead when we know those things will come. We don't have to be fearful of it because we have someone on our side. And that is God who is our rock. Let's take a moment and bow our heads and hearts and pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. I pray that this has been helpful, encouraging, remind, reminding us, Father, of things that we know. Things that we often take for granted. And Father, don't let us fall away from you in the peaceful times of life. But let us always be anchored to you, our rock. Let our hearts be worshipful of you. That we may honor you. And that we may successfully and peacefully navigate the difficulties that come our way. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. In his name we pray. Amen.